Wow, thank you, Ashley, Chad, choir, orchestra. Rejoice in the Lord always. Why? Because it's well with my soul, right? And He's never failed me yet. And that yet is a promising guarantee that when we approach that next yet, and we all experience the next yet in life, that we can be confident that because God hasn't failed me before, He won't fail me now. What a glorious testimony. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. As we start, as we start this portion of, of worship, I wanted to share just a brief video with you about our time together last week. Our Super Bowl Sunday, our lunch, and, and our offering as we raised money for uh, those in need of hunger in our community. And just wanted to give a little bit of report and reminder as we move ahead. video shared with us, the Feed the Funnel party will be August, April 29th. It'll be on that Sunday afternoon. We'll gather in, in hopefully a couple of shifts to pack meals in, in these little bags that we'll seal and put together that provide a mineral-enriched meal that we'll be sharing through not only our food bank, our, our uh, food pantry, but also through the food pantries as, that were mentioned here of Mission Norman Food and Shelter and also Salvation Army. There's still time to give towards that. We don't have to, to give our report to uh, uh, the Feed the Funnel folks until the, the middle of April. So I want to encourage you to be mindful of our effort to make a difference for the hungry of Norman. And we, are, we should rejoice because of your offering last week. We're right at about $4,000 was given last week towards this project. And I want to encourage you to continue to give. And so I wanted to say thank you and as a church to be encouraged as we move forward to, to work to, to help feed the hungry in our community. One reason to rejoice in the Lord here at First Baptist. We have been working through the book of Philippians. We have been reminded that Paul was in prison, most likely in Rome, when he was writing this letter, reflecting and celebrating and remembering the beautiful relationships that he shared with the church at Philippi. And today we want to finish that, that, this letter as Paul 
may not have even realized and understood that, that he would be released. He hoped he would be released. But the reality was is he did not know if he would ever see the folks back at the church at Philippi again. And we've been talking about the book of Philippians around this idea of the way of Christ. And so very briefly, I want us to, to reflect on what is the way of Christ? What is it that this short letter that Paul wrote to a church that can mean to us even today? How can we apply the truths of the way of Christ that Paul has shared in our lives today? And so I would encourage you, Philippians is just four short chapters, to regularly go back and to read and to meditate and reflect on the truths of this letter. In chapter 1, what we discovered is that in the way of Christ, we're to understand that God is always at work in me. Philippians 1, 6 says this. Paul writes to the church, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Again, what Paul would later say in this, in this chapter is that to live is Christ. And that God is always about working in us His work of salvation. And so what Paul would say is while God is at work in us, we are to work out our salvation. We're to live into what God is working into each of us. So as we would reflect on the way of Christ, let us remember that God is always at work in us, seeking to perfect what He has begun in us, and that we're to work that out in our lives each and every day. As we moved into chapter 2, what we discovered in the way of Christ is that we are to have the attitude of Christ. We are to have the mind of Christ. And it's so beautifully described in verses 3 through 5 of the second chapter of Philippians when Paul writes this. He says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this attitude, which was in Christ Jesus. Josh did a wonderful job of sharing today, and he pulled on this passage out of Mark chapter 10, a beautiful passage that tells us that Jesus came to serve not to be served. That's the attitude of Jesus. He came to serve us. He was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. If anyone ever had the, the right to say, I've come that you would serve me, it was Jesus. But no, Jesus said, I have come to serve you. He came to serve and to obey, even to the point of death on the cross. Jesus' attitude was Complete commitment to his Father, complete obedience to his Father to serve others and to die on the cross. This is the attitude that we are to have, and this is the way of Christ. In chapter 3, we discovered that the way of Christ simply means for us to, to press on. Paul said that he had learned in verse 14 that he would press on toward the goal of the prize for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Do you remember, since it is NCAA basketball season, do you remember Phi Slamma Jamma? 
Some of you are old enough like me to remember that group of guys that played at the University of Houston. They were led by Hall of Famers, NBA Hall of Famers, uh, Elijah Wan, Hakeem Elijah Wan, and Clyde Drexler. And I was a, a senior in high school when they made their big splash and big debut, but the exciting thing was they were coming back as seniors, and they were bringing a new brand of basketball. They were, were Billy Tubbs ball, Billy ball on steroids, right, with those guys, and it was incredible. It was exciting to watch them play, and 1983 was the year that they were guaranteed and supposed to win the NCAA championship. And so the brackets were placed and and done, and we were ready to watch the tournament. But there was another team that made the tournament that year, the team from North Carolina State. If you don't know their story, at the end of the regular season, they were unranked. Their record was 17-10, and and they had no chance at all, hardly, of making the NCAA tournament. Unless they won the ACC, which is considered to be one of the hardest conferences in college basketball. If they won that tournament, if they went undefeated, then they would probably get a seed. And sure enough, they won the ACC tournament. And they earned a, a, a number 16 rank in college basketball as a part of that. And earned a number 6 seed for the tournament. That means they just barely made the top 25 as far as those who put the tournament together. They were a long shot. To win one, even two games, much less go very far. And yet as a freshman in Walker Tower, we gathered around the television sets to watch the final game. And nobody thought North Carolina State had a chance. If you remember the end of that game, if you haven't, you can go to YouTube and watch it. And North Carolina State kept the, ball, the game close and they were, were down by a point. And they were trying to scramble to get a last shot off. And finally, the guard who almost had the ball stolen just threw up a prayer with with time running out from Trey Young distance, right? He threw it up, and it was the best air ball in the history of college basketball, right? Except that air ball, that errant shot turned into an alley-oop that was caught by their center and dunked with one second left. Time was over. And North Carolina State had pulled off the greatest, one of the greatest upsets in college finals basketball. And they stormed the, co- the, the court. And one of the iconic scenes from that event was their coach, Jim Valvano, scurrying around the court looking for someone to embrace and to hug because they'd won. And, and everybody else was already piling on each other. Valvano had pulled it off in his his quest to press on and we're not going to give up and, and we can win and we, you know, we're going to have to win nine games in a row to win the national championship and guys, we can do it. In 1992, that was 1983, Jim Valvano was diagnosed with cancer. An aggressive cancer that was, it penetrated into his bones and he was in for the fight of his life. In 1993, I believe it was, he was awarded the Arthur Ashe, the first ever Arthur Ashe Courage and Humanitarian Award at the first annual ESPY Awards. Two months before his death, he gave one of the most memorable speeches that you may have ever heard. During his speech, he said this. He said, there's three things that you should do every day. Laugh. Think. And have your emotions moved to tears every day. 
laugh, think, have your emotions moved. And he continued on and he said, think about where you started and think about where you are and think about where you are going to be. Think about where you're going to be. Press on. Press on. He announced during that speech the start of what we know today as the Jimmy V Foundation for Cancer Research. The motto of this foundation is simple. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. And as he shared that motto and as he introduced the the foundation that he was beginning for cancer research, he said this, two months before he would die, he said, I am going to fight this cancer and I'm going to be back here next year to give this award to the new recipient. Jim Valvano understood that the secret to life, one of the secrets of life was to never give up. And you see the way of Christ is for us to press on, to press on. The way of Christ is to never give up. Let us remember this. As we begin chapter 4 today in Philippians, Paul says this, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And then he goes on and he says in verse 5, he says something very interesting. He says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men, for the Lord is here. Well, well, how can we rejoice at all times? How can we learn to rejoice in all things? I think what Paul would say to us is, is remembering that the Lord is near. And he said, remember this gentle spirit, this word that, that may be translated in a lot of different ways, is one of the most difficult concepts to to try to translate into the English language. It it carries along with this idea of, of generosity, of gentle spirit. It's a gentle spirit that results in rejoicing. It's a gentle spirit that says this, the law... Remember Paul in chapter 3 talked about how significant the law was for him. How he was a guardian of the law. How he, 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 he guarded the law. He was going to go and persecute and put Christians to death because they were against the law. And here Paul is saying, let your gentle spirit, let this spirit that, that understands that the law does not have the last word, but rather... That God's gentleness and mercy go beyond the law. I think the picture here that I would, would re- reference this to is the story of the adulterous woman in John 8. Remember that story? This woman had been set up for, for the crime of adultery. And the, the, the verdict or the punishment for adultery was that this woman should be put to death. And so the, the religious leaders were creating this spectacle and they, they entrapped this lady and, and they brought her to Jesus and they said, Jesus, this woman has been caught in adultery. The law says we're to put her to death. What do you say? And they knew that if Jesus didn't put her to death that, that they would have a victory because the law said put her to death. She was caught in the act of adultery. And in that powerful story, Jesus begins to, to write and stands up. He says, okay, any who's without sin, you can be the first to cast the stones. 
Jesus steps, sits back down and begins to draw on the dirt again, right in the dirt. And one by one, these religious leaders and the crowd that had gathered disappeared because they knew they were all guilty of the law. And Jesus, when everyone was gone, I believe he, he reached down and he picked this woman up in her shame and in her guilt and said, I do not condemn you either. Now go and sin no more. That's this idea of gentle spirit. And what Paul is telling us is because in Christ we have this gentle spirit that, that the law doesn't have the last word anymore. Because of that, we can rejoice at all times. God is near us. And so let us rejoice in that. You see, the way of the Lord means that we can rejoice always in Him. Have you learned the secret to rejoicing? Even in the midst of the trials and the tragedies of life, even in the midst of those difficult times, we too can learn to rejoice always because the Lord is near. Because He has placed within us, He has worked within us this gentle spirit. You see, for Jim Valvano, cancer did not have the last word. As he was sharing this speech at the ESPY Awards situation, he said, uh, again, that we're to laugh every day. So he went on to tell a story. He went on to tell a story about his first pre-game speech as a basketball coach. He was the freshman coach of Rutgers. That was back in the days, if you'll remember, when, when freshmen weren't allowed to play on varsity teams, but they were uh, allowed to play on a freshman team. And Jim Valvano was the coach of that freshman team at, at Rutgers. It was his first college coaching job. And he wanted his first game to be memorable, and he wanted to go in and he wanted to give the best pep talk he could to his players and, and go in and inspire them to victory in that day. And so as he was thinking about what he might share, he remembered back to his own coaching idol, Vince Lombardi. And he remembered Vince Lombardi's first speech with the Green Bay Packers. He remembered that, that Lombardi had inherited a Packers team that wasn't very good. They, they didn't have a winning culture and tradition. In fact, the year before Lombardi came, the Packers were one win, ten losses, and one tie. And Lombardi tells the story that he wanted to, to inspire his, his, his men to go out onto the field. And so whenever the, the, the coach would traditionally go in 20, 25 minutes before the, the game would start and inspire the kids and uh, the, the players and turn them out, the Lombardi decided he would wait. And so these men were waiting in their locker room for minutes and minutes, and the time kept creeping closer and closer and closer to game time. And finally, with just a few minutes before the team was to be on the field, Lombardi busts into the room, making a loud sound, and he begins to pace back and forth in front of the players. He says, gentlemen, look at me. We are going to be successful if this year you will focus on three things, on your family, on your faith, and on the Green Bay Packers. And the locker room exploded and the men went out and they beat the Chicago Bears on that day. And over the next years, the Green Bay Packers would become one of the dominant forces in the National Football League. 
Well, Valvano remembered that and he said, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And so he left his players in the locker room and, and they were sitting around waiting on their coach to get in before the game and, and Valvano was out in the hallway and he's pacing back and forth, he says. He's thinking, okay, success, family, faith, Rutgers basketball, success, family, faith, Rutgers basketball, and so he says he turns to, to blow into the door, and he, he busts into the door, and the, do the door's jammed or locked or something. He said he almost broke his wrist when he hit the door so hard. And he runs into the locker He goes into the locker room, and, and the guys are kind of looking at him strange. And so he regathers himself, and he begins to pace back and forth. And he goes, gentlemen, look at me. We're going to have a successful year if we'll focus on three things. Focus on your family, and focus on your faith, and focus on the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> Dying of cancer, Valvano understood that cancer didn't have the last word. And that even in the midst of that pain and suffering that he was going through, that he could find joy, and he could find laughter. In the midst of that. And oh, that we would remember that the way of Christ is the way of rejoicing in all things. Paul continues in verse 8. He says that the way of Christ is the way of thinking on specific things. Dwelling on specific things. He writes in verses 8 and 9. Finally, whatever is true... Whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence or anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Practice these things. This phrase, to, to think or to dwell on, means to ponder. It means to deliberate. Now, it's interesting, in, in the classical literature, when, when this word is used most often, it's most often used with the idea of devising evil against someone. I'll bet you've been there before, where, where someone is, has made you so angry and upset that you, you're going to get revenge, and your mind is just consumed with the plan and how can I get this person back what can I do and your mind it just dwells and it ponders and it deliberates on that idea how can I get even and Paul say no that's not the way of Christ on the contrary the way of Christ is to think the things of Christ to think things that are honorable and, and worthy of God that are, are right and just and to allow your mind to ponder and deliberate and think on those things without ceasing, without end. Do you think on those things in that way? Have you already been watching the Olympics? It's been pretty exciting so far. One Olympic athlete said this, in order to be an Olympic athlete, you have to train your mind like you train your body. The athlete's maxim is this, the competition, the Olympic competition, once you qualify, once you get to that level, it's 90% mental and 10% physical. 
Now think about that. Someone has suggested that in order to, to be an Olympic athlete, you have to dedicate over 10,000 hours to training and preparing your body. And yet what Olympic athletes will tell you, it's 90% mental. How many hours do athletes at that level sit thinking and pondering and visualizing their event, their, their match, their race? And they picture it in their mind and, and they think on it and they dwell on it. And then they go and do it. And this is the picture that Paul is giving us. We are to, to visualize that situation, visualize that conversation, visualize that opportunity to serve or to, to act or to react in a way that's not unlovely, unrighteous, in a way that's not excellent. It's interesting. We got up yesterday morning and Wilson had told us that the that Korea is 15 hours ahead of us. So we found it interesting that in the morning that the uh, ski jumping was still on. So it's almost 10, 11, 12 there at night. And they're still jumping. Do you remember those of us that grew up in the days of wild world of sports? What would the picture of the agony of defeat was? Is the guy tumbling off the ski jumping hill, somersaulting down because he missed it? And I'm thinking, these guys are crazy. But imagine the mental focus and concentration that you have to have zipping down a hill that's about to end and to focus and to know that you've got to, to stretch, you've got to pull up, you've got to move at the exact sick second, half second in order to achieve maximum distance. It's about dwelling and, and thinking and practicing and doing that thing perfectly. One Olympic athlete said this, you have to learn how to evict the obnoxious roommate from your mind, right? The obnoxious roommate that says, ah, you can never do that. <laughs> Remember when you fell down the hill and somersault, salted? You've got to get rid of the voices. You've got to expel those voices. You've got to evict the voices that would come against you and say, you can't live the Christian life. You can't walk the way of Christ. Those voices need to be evicted and taken away from our minds because we need to learn what it means to dwell on that which is good and that which is truth and that which is honorable and that which is pure and that which is lovely, that which is of good reputation, that which is excellent and that which is praiseworthy. And how many of us have this voice, this roommate that lives within us whose words are completely opposite of all those qualities and characteristics. We can no longer dwell on those things, but must learn to dwell on the things of Christ, for that is the way of Christ. Paul continues on and tells us in verse 11 that we need to learn to be content. In a prison cell in Rome, Paul says, I've learned to be content in all circumstances, whether I'm rich or poor, whether I'm hungry or not hungry, whether I'm well or whether I'm sick. I've learned to be content. The word content means to be satisfied, to, to find yourself in a state of happiness or satisfaction. Not that not that is dependent upon external circumstances, but rather on internal circumstances from rejoicing in the Lord always and from dwelling on and practicing the things of God. 
I've learned to be content. And then this powerful verse in verse 13, Paul says this, I've learned to do all things. Now that's not a little magic genie lamp that says, okay, God, here we go. Paul is saying, I've learned to be content in all things. Through Him, through Christ, who strengthens me. Why? Because He's with me. Why? Because I have a gentle spirit. Why? Because I'm thinking and dwelling and meditating upon the things of Christ. Now, contentment is not permission for a passive, lazy life or permission to not reach one's potential. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, he says, Godliness, the way of Christ, if you'd allow me to suggest, godliness is actually a means of great gain when it is accompanied by contentment. And then Paul goes on to say that we're to learn to be content with food and with shelter and covering. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some longing for that, some that have sold their souls for that, have left the faith and have been pierced with many griefs. Back to the letter at Philippians, Paul closes out with these words and he says, I've learned to be content, that I can do all things, I can face any circumstance through him who strengthens me. Because in verse 19 he says this, because I know that my God will supply all of your needs, he'll supply all of my needs according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The way of Christ is to live through Christ, to live through him. As we've read through this book, this this letter to the church, I can't help but believe that the way of Christ is the secret to excellence. For through Christ, I can live a life rejoicing. Through Christ, I can think on excellent things. Through Christ, I can learn to be content. Through Christ, I can learn to do all things as I work out what God is working into me. This is the way of Christ. And this is the way of excellence. Let's pray.